Hello and welcome to another edition of the Let's Review Podcast. I'm Adam McPartland. As always, with me is Steve Bellafield. Thanks for joining us. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing quite all right. How about I'm yourself, doing Mr. pretty Adam? good, working on getting my sleep schedule corrected and everything. Uh, Steve, this is our fourth episode, which means we've been doing this for a month. Oh Woo-hoo! my god, we're a month old. Oh, it's beautiful. Soon we'll be able to walk. Uh, well, actually, I don't know how long it takes babies either. to walk, yeah. but, you know, we'll be saying first words. Oh, wait, we're already ahead of the curve yeah. on that. Uh, Man, there's nothing really left for us to do. Yeah, no, I guess we better end here. Well, thank you for yeah, watching the rest of listening. Yeah, we've already done. I mean, <laughs> might as well just end <laughs> on a high note. <laughs> and yes. that's it. Speaking of ending oh, on course. high notes, though, that actually is a great accidental segue. <laughs> <laughs> into our topic today of if movies were great. Now, the way Steve presented this, it was his idea this week, the way Steve presented this was, I have kind, it was like more of a, I have kind of an idea. It's like if mo- like movies that were good, but they had one thing wrong with it, and I'm like, oh, I got you. So movies that would have been great if not for blank. And Steve absolutely concurred in the first movie that sprang to his mind, which is why I, the let's end on a high note works as such a great segue, is I Am Legend. Because for oh. you, the theatrical version did not, but the alternate version did. So Steve, take it away. Yes. Okay, so for anybody who is not familiar with the with the film I Am Legend, it is a 2007 or 2008 Will Smith vehicle that is based on the 1954 novel of the same name by Richard Matheson, which is a good book. Go ahead I should say it. this is actually a and good Will Smith novel with sci-fi implications, very much unlike After Earth. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So the premise of it is that Will Smith plays a, uh, <clears throat> a military colonel named, uh, well, scientist slash colonel kind of dude named Robert Neville, and he has been living in the apocalyptic empty streets, mostly empty streets of New York City after a horrible apocalypse which involved a virus turning a ton of humans into vampire-esque creatures. Kind of like a mix between zombies and vampires, you know? The, the way they act is kind of more zombie-esque, but they do, they do not like going out in sunlight. And so the, the film concerns his efforts to hopefully find a cure while he's living all by himself. It's an interesting, I think, character study in his character uh, as he lives by himself he makes conversation with mannequins that he has set up all over the place uh he he has a dog and like he's just trying to survive he's trying to hopefully find some kind of a cure and it's just not really working and he's hoping to find other people who could help survive and maybe defeat the whole virus vampire situation and i loved this movie right up until the very end. So this is this is what ruined the movie, was the ending in the theatrical cut. Now, I am guessing that... Well, actually, let me explain what happens in, in the ending. So, yeah, spoilers 
for anybody who hasn't seen it, but go watch the movie and also go read the book. It's really good, but I'm also going to be spoiling that 70-year-old novel. It's been but, uh... 70 years. It's not It's not too soon, Steve. You're free to do it. It's not Avengers Endgame where there's a, there's a buffer time. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, it's way past the three years-ish yes. buffer time. So, yeah, so at the end of I Am Legend, uh, at some point in the movie before, about halfway through, he meets with this woman and uh, I think, I, I, actually no, he's not her son, but uh, like she's traveling with a young boy and she like meets up with Will Smith and he takes them to their hideout or to his hideout and uh, and they're hiding out there. But then at the end of the movie, the vampires, they find out where he lives, they break into his place and he's like, barricading himself and the other two survivors in the uh, in the basement laboratory that he has set up. And so the zombies are like breaking in like they're trying to break through this like supposedly unbreakable glass that he has set up and he's like okay what do we do what do we do and this is where the split happens between the original theatrical ending and the or the original alternate ending and the ending that they showed in theaters. In the theater version, he shuts them away in some kind of a lockbox kind of thing uh, in the wall. And then he takes out a grenade and then he blows up himself and the rest of the laboratory which kills all of the vampires. Okay. So. I can kind of understand why they would want that because it's a very punchy, very uh, active kind of action-oriented ending to a movie that they kind of sold on various action set pieces. Uh, like, if you watch the trailers, it's much more epic in, in its feel than the final movie is. The final movie is, for the most part, relatively uh, quiet, but, like, the action scenes do a very good job of breaking it up. But this last action scene at the end, the explosion that punctuates the end of the film, just doesn't do it for me. It really contradicts the whole character of, that Will Smith's character has been going through, the arc, rather, that he's been going through. And I was wondering, like, why this just wasn't gelling with me. And then I watched the uh, the alternate ending, which you can find on various DVD releases. You can find it either in the bonus features, or you can, I think, find entire DVDs that have that just show the movie with the original alternate ending. And in the alternate ending, what he realizes is that the vampires are... they are coming into his lab because he previously had kidnapped a female uh, from the vampires, and the alpha male of the vampires is, like, trying to get her back. And so he realizes that the vampires are aware, they are... they actually, like, have conscience and uh, intelligence and all that, and he realizes that he has been the monster to them, and they are just trying to get revenge. So what does he do? He he uh, unhooks all of his experimental devices from the female vampire he has. He opens up the door, and he brings her outside, and just lets her go back to her family. And what happens? The vampires, they, like, acknowledge him, and then they leave. And it's this moment of understanding of like, these these things are not really the monsters anymore. He is the monster. He has become the monster of their legends, which, by the way, for those who haven't read the book, spoilers, is also the ending of the book. He 
in that in the book, however, he does also kill himself, but because he realizes that he's the monster, he's the bad guy. And then the movie ends with them going to the uh, this human colony up in like New Hampshire or somewhere. But it's significantly more powerful than the theatrical ending. And if they had gone with that, this movie would have been much more memorable. This movie would have been significantly better. So, yes, sir. Adam, what did you think? What did you think when you watched uh, when you watched this? Well, first, film? I'd like to say that the, the well, book ending well, sounds incredibly yeah. depressing and and even better. <laughs> Oh, it absolutely is oh depressing. Oh my god, it's so, it's so heartbreaking. Number two, yeah. I'll also say that um, neither of the neither of the endings, and this also relates to the book, or at least the way you described the ending of the book, I should say, because I didn't read it, but uh, none of the endings and neither of the versions of the movie, therefore, explain what the title even means. Well, uh, no, would you no, like me to explain that to you? I get it from what you said regarding oh, yeah. the book. Okay. But the, the, the movie does not do a good job of explaining what that title even means. I thought, upon watching it long ago, when I watched the original version, the theatrical version, I Am Legend meant he was a legend among the humans because he came up with the antidote for the zombie virus. At... Well, that is, that is, I can't, I think the, uh, the approach that they take with the theatrical version, but I think it's not very good. Yeah, continue. I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't overly clear to me, so I kind of, just, I, I took it, and it, I, I mean, it, it was kind of weird, but I was like, all right, well, I, got, I mean, I guess it makes sense. They told legends of him and who he was, and he sacrificed himself to get the antidote. That's, I mean, that's legendary enough, I guess, yeah. Okay. This version from the book just sounds a whole lot better. So, I mean, honestly, on the, on the one hand, I'm like, well, the alternate ending was far superior. But on the other hand, my God, I wish that ending had been on the, in the movie because that was better. That's even better. <laughs> it's just a better... Yeah. It's, it's like also, seven. It's not the ending we want. It's the ending we need. Yeah, exactly. Not every movie deserves no. a happy ending. And yeah... And we can debate about, like, it probably would have been better if they made it more light in the book, uh, where he does end up dying for that whole sake. But I think the alternate ending as it's filmed works it really I well. Do, I mean, neither one saved the dog, so I don't really, I don't care. They, they both suck as far as I'm no. concerned. The dog dies. But... the, the uh, Spoiler alert, the dog does die, unfortunately. And it's a very, it very really sad is. scene. It's like the most depressing <laughs> thing I've ever seen in my life. And personally, I had a German Shepherd, so. Yeah, I, I have a German Shepherd. Well, my family has a German Shepherd was, as well. I was watching and like, the, oh my God, this is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's heart It really was. I was but, not having fun those those minute, that minute and a half. Oh God, that was mm. awful. But it also it also serves the story. It in, does. It's just not a way. fun. That, that's the one thing. Like that's the that's the one rule I wish everyone would follow. Don't kill the dog. <laughs> that's it. Kill each other all yeah. you want. Just don't kill the dog. <laughs> I also uh, this is going back to the original to not the original but uh, the theatrical ending of I Am Legend. But 
the uh, I don't know if you if you remember, but like at the very end, um, the I can't remember her but name. But yeah, she has a voiceover. Uh, yeah, she has a voiceover as she and the kid drive up to Vermont or New Hampshire, wherever yes. the like colony of humans is, and she just like it ends with her handing the vial of blood that she got from Will Smith to the first guy who she meets. And, I, and it cuts to black right after this, but I honestly would have loved to see a, like, just extended version by 10 seconds where the guy who she hands it to just looks at it, looks at her, looks at the vial of blood, looks back at her, and goes, the yeah, am I really? supposed to fit with this? <laughs> uh, a vial of blood. Un- that would have un- a, a vial of unexplained blood, and I didn't get you anything. What? Yeah. <laughs> sense does that make? Oh, man, uh, Hollywood. But yes, I do I do 100% agree with you, sir, that this movie would have been great if only they had used that alternative ending in the theater. Because I find sentience among and and common ground among differing parties. Like in Arrival, I find I find common ground in unspoken language and unspoken in unspoken feelings and emotions that I find that to be a good source of a film. I, I don't know why. I just always yeah. lean there. As I said with Arrival, I mean, it's like... um, anything where people are speaking in two different languages, even in silent films, like in Wings, I thought was great. The artist is not fantastic, but it gets the point across enough that I enjoyed at least watching a silent film, yeah. which is hard enough for me to do. Um, Metropolis as well. Yeah. Yes. I also like just real quick one one last actual uh, yes, note absolutely. and I'll make it quick but uh, on the DVD that I have of I Am Legend they they advertised the alternate ending as the original alternate ending that was too controversial to show and it's like or that was too controversial for audiences and it was like what are you talking about this alternate ending is significantly better it's not it doesn't have a needless explosion and it's it's about them coming to terms with and like understanding people who they thought were monsters before and acknowledging them as basically human beings. Why is that the controversial ending? Well, I will say, I will tell you why it's the controversial ending, Stephen. Here's where I show everybody my, my uh, Roger Ebert colors. It's because not everybody in these test audiences are as cultured as you and I and care as much about movies and watch them with such detail as you or I do. A lot of people in generic audiences just want bombastic finishes. Oh, Will Smith blows himself up and blows up all the zombies. Good for the zombies. Yeah. Yeah. It's an explosion. No. Not always the right way to go. And for that reason, I can understand why it would be a little controversial. But... I do agree with you. It's not. It's better. Humanity understanding another species. Almost as if we need to get along better with our environment. What what could possibly be so controversial about that in 2007 when George Bush was... Pre- well, when Dick Cheney was president, basically. <laughs> <laughs> As we all learned from Vice. Uh, uh, Vice, fantastic movie. I'm gonna plug that one right there real quick. 
But anyway, that's you about all I have to gush on that a one. Movie with an alternate ending, and so for for my first movie, let's go with a, a movie with an entire entire alternate version. Never mind alternate ending. Who who needs an alternate ending when you could just remake the entire movie? <laughs> Except it wasn't a remake. So my first movie is Kingdom of Heaven. And my stipulation was this movie would have been great if not for the producers and the studio that made Ridley Scott cut 45 minutes from the movie. Uh. Ridley Scott made this wonderful movie, Kingdom of Heaven, starring or I almost said Christian Bale, <laughs> starring Orlando Bloom <laughs> <laughs> about the Crusades, so Christian is involved somehow, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I can see where you got confused, because Ra's al Ghul that's true. from, uh, Ra's, from yes, Batman does, that's, that's does also true. You know, if you, train, if you train for a few seconds with Liam Neeson, then you become a knight, as we see in Kingdom of Heaven. If you train with him for a few months, you become Batman. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And there's problem number one right there. The, the, most of the time he spends with Liam Neeson is cut, but also, well, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a second. We'll, 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 get, we'll get there. The movie is about this blacksmith, Balian. He's kind of just living his life, doing his thing. Some guy comes up to him and says, Yo, what's up, bro? I'm your dad. And apparently, nothing changes. Later on, some guy comes up to him and says, why didn't you leave? What's wrong with you? And makes a comment about Balian's recently suicided, recently dead by suicide wife, which causes Balian to stab him and burn down his blacksmith place of work, mount his horse and gallop on and catch up to his father, played by Liam Neeson. Um, 30 seconds later, after one little round of training, uh, presumably Orlando Bloom trained with the swords that he made, just like he did in Pirates of the Caribbean, in case he came across pirates. Um, but after 30 seconds of training with, uh, with, with his father, uh, some some of the bishop's men, and back then the bishop was in control, some of the bishop's men ride up into the forest, and we don't know that the bishop's men until they say, until after the fight is over, and there's a clear confrontation about the bishop sent us, and thank the bishop for his love, and the, Liam Neeson kills the guy. So there's problem number one. That first scene, the entire, that entire thing is like, maybe 10 minutes shorter than it should have been. And I'm, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but there's no exposition of why the bishop didn't like this guy to begin with. There's no way of knowing that the guy that Balian just stabbed was his half-brother. You don't know that. He's just some random guy. It's like an, an, assi it's like an assistant or just a random grave digger walked up to him and made a comment about his dead wife. Like, who wouldn't stab me? Who wouldn't stab me? Yeah. Like, even back then, it's like, you're talking to me about my dead wife? I'm gonna kill you. But that's his half-brother. It makes a world of difference. Just on that level. And as you go through the movie, there's a lot more... A lot more that 
gets cut out that makes things clearer. Eventually, Balian finds his way to Jerusalem. He's a knight now. He took over for his father at this place called Ibelin because he's now dead. He's charged with being a good knight and serving the king, who's King Baldwin IV, who I'll get to that actor in a minute. The whole thing revolves around King of Jerusalem, a Christian, versus Saladin, Muslim, who wants to take back Jerusalem for the Muslims. It also has these other guys who are kind of jerks who want to take over. The king's sister, who is going to be next in line after the king, King Baldwin, dies because he's got leprosy. And the fact that she wants Balian to marry her because he's a good guy, but she's already engaged to one of the jerks. So he feels guilty and chooses not to. And so the jerk becomes the king and sends Christianity into a war it can't win and basically gets the entire army killed. And it should be said, this is based on factual events. This actually happened in real life. Balian was left in charge after the entire army had left Jerusalem. He knighted like 30-something knights that day because they had none aside from him. And they managed to hold off a Saracen army of like 200,000 men or something. And it's a fantastic battle that deserves to be told and the story deserves to be told well. Except there are 45 minutes left on the cutting room floor because the producers and the studio decided to tell Ridley Scott that they knew better and said, well, we can't have a movie that's almost three hours or over three hours. No one will sit through that. What are you kidding me? So they told him, cut 45 minutes or we're not doing it. And so he basically cursed their names on his way to the cutting room floor and then released the director's cut as well afterwards. And every movie critic on Earth, as well as regular audiences, decided not only was this a great director's cut, but this might very well be the greatest director's cut of any movie ever made. And to that point, I do want to say there is one moment at the end when the seed, when the battle is starting that Ava Green's character is kneeling in all in black like she's mourning. And in the regular film, it makes no sense. No one knows why she's doing that. She's just there. We just figure she's crying and praying to God because Jerusalem is screwed because the wrong king was the wrong person was made king. In the director's cut, it actually makes sense. And you kind of hate Ava Green a little bit. And then you kind of judge Balian for getting together with her. But at the same time, well, you know, I mean, they were going to end up together eventually. Whether that happened in real life or not, I don't know. But it's it's, it's good for the story. That being said, Steve, your opinion of the original versus the director's cut. So... First off, I just want to point out, like, just imagine being the producer, like some whatever level Hollywood yeah. producer who has, who thinks you have the guts to walk up to Ridley Scott, who has made such incredible like, films. How do you walk up to Ridley Scott? Like, it, it's almost as bad as walking up to Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and saying, I know more than you about your movie, about what is good for your movie. And just... It's ridiculous oh, to imagine, but 
Uh, I mean, like, granted, Ridley Scott later would go on to make Prometheus and Alien Covenant, but, you know, this was way before I that. I actually like but... Prometheus, but we'll talk about that another time. That's Absolutely. a story for another day. But, but, uh, so I remember watching the original one a long time ago. That This was like, I remember hearing that this was like Ridley Scott's unsung masterpiece. And I will, and I thought, well, I'll give it a watch. Like, this was like, I'd say about 10 years ago, I think. Uh, and I thought, I'll give this a watch because I, I like historical epics. I like Gladiator, you know, I like Ridley Scott and... This seems good. This seems like a pretty promising idea. And I just was kind of confused and bored, and I found Balian to be one of the worst written protagonists in any movie. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Why? Who thought this was an unsung masterpiece? I saw the director's cut fairly recently, actually, like a couple of years uh like, I think a couple of years ago, and that film is, and, and then I watched it again, again, right. again, rather, uh, recently after you, like, said that you're going to choose it for here. It's actually astounding how much more the movie makes sense when those other 45 minutes are added back. Uh, and it's like, all sorts of character points, like the fact that Balian is a man who does not like violence. It's established very well early on, and the the priest, his half-brother, who talks about his dead wife, like, it's explained why that guy is such a jerk, and why Balian uh, ends up killing him, but it also shows the, the build-up to that scene. There's a couple of, there's at least one scene I know of where, uh, or that I remember off the top of my head, where like this guy's actively trying to provoke Balian into into an angry response, and Balian just kind of ignores it, and so it adds more depth to Balian's character. It adds much more to the story overall. It adds to the characters of pretty much everybody in the movie, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is actually a great movie. And as for why they cut it down, the only thing that I can think of is. It's just the same reason. I don't think they necessarily had anything against Ridley Scott, but it's the same reason that movie studios these days as well do not like three-hour movies, three-hour-plus movies. Because it comes down to, unfortunately, uh, it just... You can only have so many screenings of a movie during the day. And if you push a movie, a movie's runtime past the like three-hour mark, like, a lot of people, a lot of studios and a lot of movie theaters don't like it to be more than two and a half hours because that's a good amount of time to have at least, to have a good amount of showings in an afternoon slash evening. But the problem is, when you make it three hours plus, all of a sudden you have to, you have to kind of balance out your screenings and you have much less screenings that you can have on one screen. And so there's only two solutions, either a, have the movie theaters pay staff to stay until like 3 a.m. Or B, uh, you have to have more than one screen for that movie in each theater. And when that happens, well, that's a pretty big risk. And I mean, even Avengers yeah. Endgame, was, like there was a lot of concern about the fact from the studio, there was a lot of concern about how that movie's like three hours long. And that was the sequel to Infinity War, which was one of the highest-grossing movies yep. of all time. So, 
unfortunately, I can kind of see why it happened. But, oh man, they did Ridley Scott dirty. Oh yeah. Because the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut is, I would say, a solid A+. Plus, uh, like, it is. At least an A. It, no, it's, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest, I love the I love the un, I love the edited version as well. Not for not for any huge reasons, but I do love it for number one. I like the look of the battle. I still think those the look of it holds up even today. And this movie was made in two thousand five. And number two, and it's 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 a it's kind of a three parter here, even a four parter. Honestly, the portrayal of the of the two bad guys. Guy de Lusignan and uh, Brendan Gleeson's character whose name escapes me. Raimondo. What was that? Raimondo. I think his name's like Raimondo. There we go. Raimondo yeah. de Chatillon. The two of them, I I want to punch them in the face so hard. That's that's like a, that's <laughs> a great son. Like Joffrey. You hate him so much, but that just means he's doing a great job as an actor. If he makes you get that emotional yeah. about an actor, about a character, that's a good job. And these two together, it's like watching Fred and George Weasley if they had evil doppelgangers from us. It's mind blowing how much you hate them. On yeah, as as part so, two of number two, I love Jeremy Irons. I think he everything he touches is pretty much gold. But. More specifically, and not not more specifically, um, even more so, I love I love Ed Norton and Ghassan Masood. They play the king and Saladin. If it were up to me, yeah, and I was like Ghassan Masood's pub- publicist or his agent, I would have called the studio. And I would have ripped the executives to shreds because he was fantastic in the edited version. In the unedited version, that's an Oscar-nominated performance for supporting actor. Same for Ed Norton, if you ask me. But you never see his face, and that's kind of a turnoff for people who vote, so I would understand it. But Ghassan Masood was phenomenal in that movie and it bugs me to this day that he kind of in my opinion got screwed out of an Oscar nomination because of the studio that's just my thought on it I think yeah. I think the entire movie got got kind of robbed of a bunch of Oscar nominations because of this forced editing but that's the one that really annoys me yeah I, I do have one question unrelated yes, to the acting and the acting. Uh, so, uh, I, like, I'll make it quick because in, in the interest of time. But so this movie is based on a true story, as you as you mentioned. After all, Balian of, Ibel- of Ibelin uh, and the uh, the siege of Jerusalem by Saladin, like th- those are true stories yes. in history. I'm not sure how. I, I'm not a, like a very good student of history, but I have heard several people uh, talk about how this movie is historically inaccurate. And in terms of Balian's position and his 
apparently uh, the real Balian was a noble and not a bastard son of uh, Liam Neeson, um, who was alive back then, yes, for, for the record. Uh, Liam is immortal. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, so I, I guess my question is, like, where do you think the line is between, like, telling a good story and keeping to historical accuracy? Do you think this movie would have benefited from being more historically accurate? I don't know how accurate or inaccurate it is exactly, but do you think that plays into it? I think anything? historical inaccuracies can screw up films if they are, number one, made in ways as to alter the overall story, uh, the overall original story and outcome. Like, for example, the movie The Battle of the Bulge. Hugely inaccurate. Also kind of alters how it, the outcome of the battle itself. Um, this movie, inaccurate, absolutely. But it doesn't alter the outcome of what happened. Balian was maybe not held as in high regard as it was shown and yes his father was still alive and no he was not an illegitimate child and no he probably didn't have an affair with the queen with the 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 king's sister but it gets the portrayal of all of these characters correct baldwin is shown as a just and peace-loving king who doesn't want to fight and just wants to live in peace with the Muslims. Saladin is shown as not a warmonger, but as someone who feels he has to get back this city for his people because they want it, but is also not quick to war. He's shown multiple times calming down the more radical in his tent. And it's literally his tent. They're under a tent, so I'm he's literally calming them all down saying no we're, we're this is when the time comes we'll do it until then get out of my face and that's how these people were in history the overall story is pretty accurate if you take out the affair between the sister and Balian as far as I'm concerned because Everybody else is portrayed as their... I should say Tiberius is is kind of fake. Tiberius is is based on some people, but he himself is fake. Um, Other than that, again, much like in Moneyball, how Peter Brand is based on a couple of people. He's an amalgamation of people. So that's fine, too. You want to consolidate roles? All for it. Go ahead. But as long as the spirit of the car- of the of the players at the time are well done, and you're not killing the actual story of these two kings wanted to live together peacefully and not in- instigate war, and they understood what was fair and just, and looked at each other as human beings, that's fine with me. You, you got that right. Did you get the battle right? The, the army's basically destroyed and Balian's leading the army one way or another whether or not Balian was high up he was the one who ended up knighting all these people and leading them against 200,000 Muslims charging the walls so you, you got that right too and saved a bunch of people 
I will say at the end of the battle, Balian had to pay the ransoms for all of the people who were still living in Jerusalem. That was not shown in the movie. That was changed. That was kind of a big, like, whoa, what? When I read that, I will say that. Other than that, I didn't really have any moment of, whoa, what? So I'm perfectly okay with some inaccuracies as long as the overall spirit of the characters and the spirit of the story is alive. Gotcha. And that was just a really long-winded explanation of why I'm okay with it. So, sorry, hope I didn't bore you to tears. Uh, Steve, your <laughs> second movie. Okay, so we all know of the Holy Trilogy, the uh, the Father, the Son, and the Return of the Jedi. Uh, where, <laughs> and I thought my yeah. jokes were bad. <laughs> uh, I'm sure the Dark Knight and the Joke will oh, come I'm up sure they in, will. in our stuff. But um, uh, yeah, so my second movie this week was The Return of the Jedi, which, believe it or not, before the prequels came out, was considered the bad one. Uh, and we and again, the prequels are a story for another day, but I, I rather like the prequels. But here's the thing. Return of the Jedi could have been the strongest entry in all of Star Wars. So... Here's the thing about Return of the Je- about Return of the Jedi. Just it has some excellent moments in it. It has some very well done moments. For instance, my moment with, or my favorite moment of the whole film, which I think is one of the most powerful in all of uh, in all of the Star Wars series, is when uh, Vader threatens to turn Leia to the dark side or kill her, and Luke lets an outburst of emotion out, which allows him to gain the upper hand as he gets angrier and angrier, uh, and which eventually leads to him cutting off uh, Darth Vader's hand, which I think is pretty well perfect. That moment, it's it's very well acted. The the soundtrack ramps oh, it up, absolutely, and it. So, what is the problem with and and Return of the Jedi? Return of the Jedi has a lot of excellent stuff in it. And it could have been the strongest of the whole original trilogy. So what is the problem? What is the but in Return of the Jedi? His name is Richard Marquand, or Marquand, however you pronounce his name. But he was the director of Return of the Jedi. Now, I am sure that Richard Marquand was a perfectly serviceable director uh, I have not heard of any of his other films, nor have I ever seen them. But I'm sure that he's perfectly serviceable. I'm sure that he was very good. May the man rest in peace. But he was just flat out the wrong choice for directing this. Because he led to some of the goofiest stuff in in Return of the Jedi. Stuff like the fact that uh, the fight between Boba Fett and Han Solo was just it was basically a three stooges it was very where both I say that absolutely it was it was absolutely anticlimactic several moments in the film i think for instance uh yoda's death were not as uh were not as heavy as they should have been in my opinion 
and the ending battle could have been better directed. The uh, the Ewoks, I don't have a big problem with the Ewoks in and of themselves, but I just think the whole battle on Endor is just kind of bereft of tension to me. Like up until up until the point where uh, where Luke starts fighting mm-hmm. with Vader, which are like it's it's it just doesn't gel is the thing. So what would have made this better? Well, let me give you a short list of the three <laughs> names that were that were alleged to be uh, like the strongest considered for directing. Bear in mind, one of these was George, George Lucas's L- friend. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know if there was any order in on the of this list, but uh, the three names I know of are David Cronenberg, David Lynch, and which that, that would have been, been something. I, I need to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but the one I need to see even more is the version of Return of the Jedi directed by George Lucas's great friend, Steven Spielberg. Because apparently he was very strongly considered and George wanted him to direct for Return. And the only thing that stopped him from hiring one of those directors was the fact that apparently George owed a fee or a fine of some sort to the Directors Guild of America. And he just refused to pay it because reasons. <laughs> so instead, he had to go with a non-union director for Return of the Jedi. Hence, we got Richard Marquand. And again, Richie, I am sure that he was a good dude, but he was the absolute wrong choice because I need to visit the alternate universe where Steven Spielberg directed Return of the Jedi. I need to see Return of the Jedi where the guy who went on to make the Indiana Jones movies directed the fight between Han Solo and Boba Fett. I need to see the version where the guy who made E.T. directs Yoda's death scene. I need to see the movie where Steven Spielberg, the man who went on to make Saving Private Ryan, the opening D-Day sequence. I need to see that version of the Battle of Endor. I need it. And it's just so enticing to just I'll like you, create I'll a, add you one more. Uh, I need to see the guy who went on to deliver the emotional full circle of Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List give us the emotional full circle of the end of the battle when Vader as Anakin joins the force and everybody is rejoicing in the end of all hostilities. I want to see that emotional ending and that emotional like everybody is safe. Look at all I look at look at how I safe everybody is. I want to see that emotion in in that scene. It's it, it, I I absolutely agree. It's just such a huge missed opportunity and all that would have happened all that could have happened to ensure that that was the version of star wars return of the jedi we get is that george lucas swallow his pride and reach into his couch cushions <laughs> to find the pocket to pay off the director the director's guild of america fee but no we had to get some random nobody who ended up making a okay at best entry in the Star Wars film series. So, what are your thoughts? thoughts? (laughs) Kind of the same in ways that I, I, like I said, I did find the the fight between 
Han and Boba Fett to be very anticlimactic. I did think it was weird that all that happened was he got knocked into the the pit of the whatever of the of the, the of the plant from Little Shop of Horrors. But um, <laughs> I will also say I don't really find a problem with the Ewoks. I thought it was kind of actually very sad when the leader of the Ewoks died. I actually thought that was pretty sad. Um, oh, yeah. In my opinion, I also think it has the best moment of the series. Actually, two of the best moments. But for me, the best moment is Anakin joining the Force. And as someone who grew up with the prequels and was, I'll be perfectly honest, I'm going to out my mother here a little bit, was not told to watch the first three first. I was, I wanted to see the prequels first because... <laughs> I didn't know better, and it's my own. In a way, it's my fault. And my mother actually didn't get into too into movies till I grew up, so I don't really, I don't blame her either. But it is still her fault. <laughs> but, but as someone who grew up watching um, Hayden Christensen as Anakin and go bad, and then watch Return of the Jedi which was updated after Hayden Christensen took on the role they edited it to put in Hayden Christensen instead of the random guy that played Vader I started crying I, 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 I will admit it openly I wept I thought it was the most beautiful happiest thing I'd ever seen in a movie I thought it was so sweet I thought the music for that scene was appropriate and well done. Um, I also agree the the never moment when, with Luke and Vader was something interesting, and the the cutoff hand showing the the robotic wires coming out and reminding Luke he is the set he is more like his father than he knows, kind of snapping him back into reality yep. is a very strong piece of that too. But uh, yeah, I do think it. I think it's underappreciated because of how good the first two are, and nobody's going to debate how good the first two are. But I think I still think it's a really great movie. It's my personal favorite. I don't think it's the best of them, but it's my personal favorite for that reason. As I said, I'm a sucker for a good ending. So fair enough. I also am a sucker. But for I do a good agree. Ending, so I, agree I can understand. There are there are parts that were corny and could have been certainly made better by Steven Spielberg other a lot of some parts I like the way they are other parts no they needed Spielberg <laughs> and I'm sure you I mean obviously you agree but uh, is Boba Fett Han fight the one part that you would want to see change the most or is there another one that even more than that you want to see fixed Oh, man. You know, if I had to choose only one, I guess I would go with the Boba and Han fight. Like, that's that was just, like I said, a Three Stooges routine that was put in a Star Wars movie <laughs> by accident. But it's just that the movie as a whole doesn't seem to really gel. Like, the, the whole is less than the sum of its parts for me. And I think that just comes down to the fact that the director is not the most competent no, choice. Certainly not compared to you know? those three. So, I mean, like, heck, going with David Lynch especially, like, uh, David Cronenberg had Videodrome by that point in time, and uh, David Lynch had, of course, The Elephant Man, which, God, beautiful film. Movie. Yeah, 
but it's just I don't I don't know what the uh, process was that led to uh, George re- uh, deciding on Richard Marquand, but <laughs> I remember reading on the uh, on the Wikipedia page a while ago that like uh, it just says like Lucas eventually went with Richard Marquand, and it doesn't say like why he chose him. It doesn't say like he was impressed with his work on blah blah blah. I, I'm guessing that Richard Marquand had just like written his phone number on a thing and like dropped it in in George <laughs> Lucas's like office or something like that. And and he finds this guy and he goes, "Hey, eh, you know what? Sure, why not?" But that's that's all I have to say on Return of the Jedi. It should have been directed by Steven Spielberg, David Lynch, or Absolutely. David Cronenberg. I don't think anybody would argue with that. <laughs> and so we will mm. wrap up this podcast with my second movie, and this won't take very long to talk about because I've talked about it at length in some of my articles, so I'll try to keep my yammering about Tron Legacy to a minimum. Um, Tron Legacy would have been great if not for Garrett Hedlund. My God, is he bad. He is nailed on a chalkboard bad. He is so bad, I can almost barely not watch. It it takes a lot to watch this movie and tune him out. And the way I am able to do that, it's very simple. Every time he speaks, I mute the television. No, I'm kidding. I can't (laughs) do that because then I miss the music. And let's be honest, Daft Punk's score for this movie is one of the best of all time. I don't really, I will I will argue that point with anybody. I think Daft Punk did a fantastic job with the score. I think it was obviously robbed of an Oscar, but you know what? It got nominated for a Grammy. What bigger way to say the, Gra- the, the Oscars don't know what they're talking about than for the Grammys to come along and say, well, we know music and, and we nominate them, so you really suck. <laughs> Um, So, why was this movie great without him? Well, number one, most obviously of all, Garrett Hedlund can't act. Uh, That's first. He's just a pretty face, if you ask me. That's very blunt, but, you know, it's what I do. What makes the movie great already? The music, as I already said. The sound outside the music. The sound of everything on the grid of the light cycles of the light jets of the weapons of the tank of the way they make the programs sound a little metallic without it being too forced I find that to be wonderfully done too and most of all and I cannot stress this enough the visuals of this movie are some of the most inspired brilliant beautiful effects I've ever seen in any movie ever This was made in 2010. It's better than some of the movies that came out after it. If you ask me, it's one of the two best visual effects movies of the 2010s. The only one better is Gravity. I really don't see any other vision. Even the Avengers movies, which were all fantastic, I don't see them on par anywhere close to what Tron Legacy brings to the table with, with visual effects. I will say I also happen to like Jeff Bridges and uh, Bruce Boxleitner, uh, who played Tron slash Rinsler in this movie. But you never see his face in this movie. You only see him in Tron, really. And, but the original movie from the 80s, I should say, just to make that clear. 
Um, but as far as I'm concerned, without Garrett Hedlund, this movie is one of the best of 2010, 2011. With him, it suffers greatly. You can say the screenplay was average. I probably wouldn't argue that point. Uh, it probably is only average. But as as I've said multiple times, I think one of the best lines in any movie ever is, I fight for the users, which Tron says as he decides his own fate as a program after having been reprogrammed by Clue. So the, the ultimate choice yeah. of the ultimate uh, ending of programs can still choose their own fate even after being programmed to think a certain way. I think that's pretty awesome and I think it's a very fitting line for the moment. I think it's powerful and a chilling moment at the end of a fantastically visual fight scene. Okay. So your thoughts, sir. Okay. So it's uh, after you after you've gushed about it that much, like dang, I almost don't care about what I'm about I, to I, say. I, but I, <laughs> I ripped your opinion of, of, of so, cabin in the woods. Let's go. Come on. Okay. So Tron Legacy was not was for me not a very good or memorable or interesting movie. I was interested in it leading up to it. I remember the first uh, the first trailer for it actually where uh, where it had the two guys racing on the light cycles and it shows Jeff Bridges like watching them through the window of his of his like digital house or whatever. And like I remember seeing that and I was like, oh, this looks so cool. Granted, this is like 2009, <laughs> early 2008, so I was like 16 or 17, so my, my opinions had not yet been exactly defined or refined, but, you know, this movie looked really cool, and then I watched it, and it just was, if, for me, it was so cookie cutter, it was so uninteresting, and it was so safe. It just seemed like they wanted to make a movie that was kind of like Tron, the first Tron. And unpopular opinion coming in, I I, I love Tron. It's I, I love the first Tron for various things, but you know what? I'm just going to say it. it. A good movie, it is not really. It is fantastic in terms of visual effects. The visual effects push forward, uh, like how we like create visual effects and, and animation in live action movies like to this day it looks fantastic i think it's a fine movie but it's a good no movie. i would agree i would agree with that i don't think but, Tron is a good movie i think it's a fun and enjoyable movie it would be under national treasure for, under national treasure wow. umbrella territory for me good probably not yeah it's fun and, and enjoyable yeah but like I saw a real chance with Tron Legacy to do some really cool stuff, to do, to make a new statement about technology, to make all sorts of interesting parallels to the way that technology has changed since the 80s. We have online gaming. We had, back in 2010, we had online gaming. We had social media. We had internet banking, all sorts of stuff. And I thought it could go so much further than just kind of rehashing a similar conflict from 
the first Tron movie and then adding a weird looking CGI Jeff Bridges as a young man face onto onto the main antagonist. I agree that the soundtrack is like the best thing ever, but in and and, and the visuals are stunning, but like one I think that one film I think you omitted. I love Gravity and I love the visuals in Tron Legacy, but I think you omitted uh Inception, Inception was 2008. Which, no, that was 2010. It was? No, like Holy sure, yeah, crap. I'm pretty sure that was 2010. That was 2008. Holy crap. Yeah. Oh my god. But like, wow. <laughs> it's okay, it happened to me too. Remember that time I forgot yeah. about American Psycho. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> that's, that's painful. But, uh, but Inception was something that I see much more as like pushing new ideas in filmmaking and visuals and, and and having those visuals interact with storytelling so very well and that was something i really wish the tron legacy had done because it had a chance it has updated cgi technology it has daft punk doing the score and it could have made a real statement about about like technology the state of technology today how we use it the relationship between programs and users but it just doesn't. It seems like a really cookie cutter and not very interesting plot to me. And it's like Garrett Hedlund is not very good in it. I very much agree with that. But but I would not weigh the entire the entire fault of the movie on him. Also, I don't know. Like this is unrelated. But do you think that Garrett Hedlund is a good actor in anything else? Because I, the only other movie that I remember seeing him in, actually only two other movies I remember seeing him in are Inside Lewin Davis, where he was okay, but he wasn't in there for too long. And I think he was in there for like all of 10 minutes. And uh, I remember he was in the movie of Aragon. Oh my God, uh, Which... <laughs> oh, but that's... Yeah, he like, was, even, he was... Even like, Jeremy Irons couldn't save that movie. Like, yeah. I would hold him I'm sure... I would hold him, sure up, 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 I would hold him his feet to the fire over that one. He was in Troy, and he was in yeah, Mudbound no. as well. But oh yeah, I do not he remember played him Patroclus. In Troy. He played but... the cousin who got killed in Achilles' place. Oh, gotcha, um, gotcha. That, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, I, like, long story short, I do not think that he's a great actor, but I don't think that this movie was his fault. I think there's a ton else that is wrong with Tron Legacy. It has no legacy to speak of. It is not very memorable. Well, I will leave it on this note then, because there is one thing I do want to say, as I, I did forget to say something about traffic. I don't want to forget to say something about Tron Legacy. That was, I believe, I believe, I am not sure. I've been looking, and I couldn't find any anything that said whether or not. So maybe someone will have better luck. Maybe you, Steve. Maybe I'll have better luck this week. I've been looking, but I am... 95 to 98% sure that this was the first movie where they used that digital face swapping thing. I'm not talking about like where you put on the little green dots and you make yourself Davy Jones with tentacles all coming out your face. I'm talking about using it to make yourself that person again. So making yeah. a, a younger uh, time-resistant face of Jeff Bridges to play to be Clue. I think this is the first time that was ever done. And as we have seen from Rogue One, a Star Wars story, 
from even last year with the Irishman, those visual effects, while corny then, did start a wave of making this a thing. So, Inception, absolutely, 100%, I did forget it. But Tron Legacy does have a legacy in the sense that it started that face-swapping technology thing that so many movies are starting to use now. So, it's, it's, okay. it's at least a debate. I wouldn't argue that Inception is necessarily worse to look at. I would just argue that Tron Legacy maybe has had a bigger effect on the visuals of movies considering that a Martin Scorsese film employed something that started with Tron Legacy. Okay. That would be my argument. I would I wouldn't argue which one is better to look at because personally I can't. I can't make that argument. I'd I'd change my mind by the hour. Yeah, the only thing I can Fair agree enough. on is that gravity is better than both of them. <laughs> That's the only thing I can say. <laughs> gravity is better to look at than both of them. Well, I can I, I can agree with that, and I Absolutely. think on that note, Absolutely. we are. Oh, I'm so sorry, Steve. I did have one question though about Charlie's performances. Uh, he was in the movie for all of five minutes, but did you or did you not think that Michael Sheen? probably gave the best performance of the entire movie. He was the most memorable of the entire movie, but I don't know if it was for the right reasons. The entire time I was watching him, I was like, what? <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad thing, in a bad way, but oh my goodness, he was he was absolutely fun. He was absolutely very flamboyant. <laughs> but, he was, man. I love him in that like, movie. He's, all, he's in it for all of five minutes. Every time I watch it, it's just, I, it's a great time to watch Michael Sheen. Get that man an Oscar now that you got Leo and Gary Oldman theirs. With that, thank you, Steve, for joining me. Thank you for listening. This was Thanks our longest one. We had a lot to discuss. We'll try to keep it shorter next time, I promise. We'll really try. Till then.